0: I don't know if you've ever suffered from senioritis before. Uh, Perhaps you're a senior in high school or you're getting ready to graduate from college, but it's one of those things that kind of creeps in on you without even realizing it sometimes. Now, my senior year of college, uh, we had this thing called a capstone project we needed to complete in order to graduate. And the project was done a few weeks before classes actually let out, and that was kind of it. And I think the professors probably got tired of all the students just not showing up. And so they made this rule that on the last day a class, you just had to show up to class, basically show your face to the professor, and they would mark that you were there, and and you had to graduate. If you didn't show up in that two-hour time block, they wouldn't let you graduate. And so, two hours of time to figure out, most of us live on campus, and I walked in with one minute and 58 seconds expired in that class. Almost didn't get to graduate, because our local Taco Bell, at the time, was giving away free chicken flatbreads. Now, I'll show you a picture of these things, because they are glorious, they are amazing. They changed my life. So much so, they made this mistake of being close to a university and saying, all you got to do is drive through and you get a free, free flatbread. You don't have to buy anything. And so what do a bunch of poor, broke college dudes do? We pile in a car and just drive around the parking lot like a bajillion times in a few hours. And I squeaked in there with the skin of my teeth. Now, senioritis is interesting because you've done all this work. You've done all this effort. Man, you just got to finish it off. You're right there. Can't you just kind of push through? And it's a result of apathy at that point, if we're being honest. I don't really care anymore. It doesn't really motivate me. Apathy is interesting because it has this ability to have this mindset creep in that, well, does doing something actually make a difference? That if I actually put in the work, is it truly going to change an outcome for my life? Now, when I think of apathy, there's one poster child that I think of, and it's this man here. I'll show you a picture of him. Stanley Hudson from The Office. Now, if you've seen The Office, you know uh, about Stanley. If you haven't seen The Office, he's kind of this secondary uh, character in the background. He kind of uh, is always doing crosswords, doesn't care a whole lot. He just kind of mumbles just about his entire work time at Dunder Mifflin. But there's one scene that I think really shows the picture of, of, of Stanley's apathy and what it is like to work at Dunder Mifflin with him. It's this clip. Check it out in a bed that's too small, drive my daughter to a school that's too expensive, and then I go to work to a job for which I get paid too little. But on pretzel day, well, I like pretzel day. It's all it takes to get him excited. Just give him a free soft pretzel and he's in. Now, let's just be honest for a moment. None of us really like apathy. And if we ever realize we're being apathetic toward something, we kind of want to fix it. And you might have found yourself apathetic at times in various things, whether it's your job, perhaps a, a relationship, a marriage, a friendship, your health. How many of you are going to be apathetic on your taxes, right? Uh, like, if, like April 14th, you're logging on a TurboTax to get that thing done in time. We all kind of experience apathy in some time or another. And if you've ever been a Christian for a period of time, I'm going to guess you faced apathy face on in your faith as well. And as we wrap up this teaching series to the book of Philippians, if, if you just give me your ears for a few moments, I want to talk about this idea of apathy. Where does it come from and how do we push back at it from a faith-based standpoint in our walk with Jesus? So if you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Philippians, the letter to, uh, to the ancient church in Philippi. If you have sermon notes, you can get those out and follow along. All four entrances to our auditorium, there's little spots where you can grab your sermon notes, your communion, um, Scripture memory verse cards as well. Uh, Next Sunday, we're kicking off a new teaching series called The Seven, in which we're going to be walking through the seven churches listed in the book of Revelation. But until then, here we are wrapping up the letter uh, to the church in Philippi. Paul says this, picking up in chapter 3, verse 15. He says, all of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. He's talking about the passage right before, heavenward, focus on the things that are to come in Christ Jesus. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. So Paul is writing to these Christians, encouraging them to have a mature mindset, and namely, something that you haven't yet received, but you need to live it out and pretend like you have. And that's one of the hardest parts about being a Christian, of following Jesus, being a disciple of his way, is that there's like this uh, delayed gratification that comes with following Christ it's kind of like a, like a trust fund or an endowment fund that someone else has done the work, someone else has made all the deposits on your behalf, and now you just got to kind of fall in line in order to reap its rewards. But from a faith perspective, it's that we are sinners separated from God. But Jesus lived a perfect life. He died on the cross for our sin. He rose from the grave. And anyone who believes in him shall not perish and have eternal life. That you've been given uh, a status, you've been given citizenship with God in heaven for all eternity. It is waiting for you, but now that inheritance can begin to be lived out now. But you have to put it into practice, Paul says. It's discipline. Because discipline is choosing what's best over what's now. Now this applies to everything in life, doesn't it? Uh, Let's say you're, you're trying to lose some weight. And so discipline is choosing what's best, not to eat that third glazed croissant that we give away for free and they are amazing. Instead, I'll just stop after two. Discipline is choosing the kind word over the gossip word. Discipline is choosing to think good and right about others instead of negatively or critical. And the same thing goes with every aspect of our faith. It's choosing what is best over choosing what is now and right in front of us. It's the already not yet facet of faith, if you will. That we have already received the kingdom, but it is not yet fully ours to follow. But I think in that mindset, we find ourselves thinking this. But does following Jesus actually make a difference? Does being a Christian actually change and better my life here and now? Now, I don't know if you've ever read uh, George Orwell, uh, it's it's a book, they call it a novella, I don't know what that means, but it's from 1945, it's called Animal Farm, and it's about these group of farm animals that are creating a rebellion in order to get freedom from the farmer, their oppressor, and there's all these various animals, they all represent certain parts of society, it's being led by Snowball and all the pigs, but there's this one animal who I always just kind of uh, think is hilarious, his name is Benjamin, and Benjamin is the donkey. He's the oldest animal. He's been on the farm the longest. He's kind of somber. He kind of mopes around. I guess he's kind of like Eeyore. I guess all donkeys have the same demeanor. He's always negative. He does what he has to do, but he never does any more than he has to. And when Snowball is pitching the vision for this windmill, this is how we get progress, and this is how we move forward, Benjamin says this. He says, well, windmill or no windmill. Life would go on as it's always gone on. And that is badly. I think sometimes we get into this mindset about following Jesus. Jesus or no Jesus. Life's just going to go on as it always has been. Can't really control it. Don't know what's coming my way. But Paul says you need to have a different way of thinking. And God will make it clear to you. There is a difference that will happen if you allow Jesus to transform your mindset. That when God calls us to total commitment, do we step back and say, no, good enough is good enough. Nothing's actually going to change if I fully go into this faith thing anyways. You see, that's the danger in an apathetic mindset. We begin to tell ourselves, I can focus on anything in life. I can focus on my job or that person. I can focus on anything in life outside of Jesus. And as long as I just claim belief, I will still arrive at all the good things that God has planned and in store for my life. And Paul says, no, no, that's an old way of thinking. That's a bad way of thinking. You need to have this new mature mindset that says you have to be focused on that attainable, that thing that Jesus has in store for you, that inheritance in heaven that is coming your way. But it begins here: is You need to have the mindset of this simple truth, is that Jesus truly changes us. He truly changes us. And I want to ask you this morning, like, do you believe that? Like, do you believe that that Jesus truly changes people? That he wants to truly transform and change your life, that the old is gone, the new has come? And I'm not just talking like this, yep, I'll raise my hand to that, Eric, keep preaching, yep, Jesus changes. Like, like, like legitimately, 100% deep down believe that when you follow Jesus with your life, and you you compassionately love other people, you obediently submit to his way, that it will dramatically change the course of your life and your eternity. Do you believe that? Truly. Because think of a lot of us have, have gotten into the habit of just raising our head, claiming, saying, yep, Jesus changes people, but then we live no different. We live in an immature mindset. Paul would be the first to say, man, Jesus has changed me. Paul was saying, I was, I was persecuting, I was killing Christians, I was trying to tear down uh, churches, and now here I am. I'm starting churches, I'm trying to make a Christian out of anyone who comes in my way. I can stand before you boldly and confidently this morning and say, Jesus has changed my life. Not just in small ways, but in big ways. Who I am, how I go about life, my values, what I pursue in this life, it's all because of Jesus. And some of you would probably say the same thing. Yeah, it's not just something I would raise my hand and say, yeah, that he has truly changed who I am. But we need to know where that change comes from. Paul says it this way in Philippians chapter 3, verse 17, picking up. He says, so join together in following my example, Paul says, brothers and sisters, just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For as often told you before, now I will tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ." Paul says you need to have your eyes focused. There's a model. There's an example that you follow in all points to that eternity with Christ. But you need to have the discipline to strive towards it. But then in verses 18 and 19, he says, Be weary of the people who are just kind of going with the flow. Going with the ways of the world. I don't know if you've ever been in a lazy river before. Highly recommend it. Super fun, super chill. It's one of those things that at a water park or some of our local pools have them. You just kind of go in, you find a little tube and you sit and you just go around in a circle. It's amazing. And as long as there's no punk middle schoolers trying to tip you over, it's a great, you can be there for 30 minutes, an hour, two hours, 10 hours, get a nice crispy sunburn going on. That's up to you. But the thing is you'll enter from the pool and you'll just float around in a circle. And then when you're done, you get out in the same exact spot. You've never really made any progress. You've done nothing and you've kind of just floated around. And that's what Paul is saying. He says the lazy river of life is going to lead you nowhere. It's going to lead you to what you already have and what you already know. It'll lead you to shame, destruction, your stomach, earthly things, all of which you know doesn't last and you don't want to take with you. Because in the end, if you trust your heart... Over the truths of God, you will arrive anywhere other than where Jesus has in store for you. Without a goal, without a target, without an example, without a model, without keeping our eyes focused. It's very difficult to truly follow Jesus and receive that greater reward. As they say, failing to plan is planning to fail. And that's what apathy begins to look like in our life. We're just going with the motions, hoping that at some point something will change when we're not actually doing anything different. And apathy is only overcome with discipline. But this way is that apathy may lead to conviction. There's this progression that I think comes with it, which can result in faithful disciplines apathy may lead you to conviction it may if you're paying attention you're watching out for it in your life which can if you're willing it will lead you to faithful disciplines let me give you an example of someone who if he was just apathetic our world would be significantly different let me tell you about this man and perhaps you can figure it out along the way This person was one of the most intuitive minds of the 20th century, but as a young boy, he was told by his teachers that he was too stupid to learn anything. His teacher's predictions seemed to ring true as he was fired from his first two jobs for not attaining a suitable level of productivity. Interestingly enough, though, being shunned, from the working conditions of the world was his ticket to success. Being free from those handcuffs and societal standards, his creative genius was unleashed. He went on to hold more than a thousand patents and invented some of the most world-changing devices we use today, namely a movie camera, the phonograph, and the electric light bulb. That man, none other than Thomas Edison. If Thomas Edison had just gone with the flow of the world, the lazy river of life, you're too stupid, you're not going to amount to anything, and he just said, okay, that's fine. Perhaps he could have even felt convicted about it. Now, I know I'm smarter than that, but he never tried, never did anything with that conviction. We wouldn't have some of the things we have today, or someone else would have come along and invented it instead of him. Here's the thing, and so I need you to get this in this progression. We go from apathy to conviction to discipline, but conviction without action is wasted. Conviction without action is wasted. You see, conviction is good, it's necessary, but in and of itself it is not enough. That being convicted about something doesn't actually aid apathy. You have to do something with it. And I'm afraid that we've become a culture and a society, especially in the church sometimes, that we're just cool with being convicted about stuff and never actually doing anything about it. Like, how many times have you seen an ASPCA commercial with Sarah McLaughlin in the background tearing up for all these puppy dogs and never actually adopted one? Conviction without action is wasted. You might say, well, Eric, what, I kind of feel stuck in my convictions. Well, convictions is like the same side of one, uh, two sides of the same coin. On one side, you're oftentimes convicted about things you did do that you should not have done. And on the other side of that coin is, is I'm convicted about the things that I should have done that I didn't do. Either way, you're convicted. And that's good and that's necessary. Some would say, according to Romans chapter 1, that's, that's God's law being imprinted on your heart to know the difference between right right. And wrong to a certain degree, that it could be the Holy Spirit trying to reveal, hey, this is not helpful for you in life. But hear this, is that conviction is merely the layover to a faithful life of Jesus. It is not the final destination, because conviction in and of itself does nothing. And you say, well, I'm stuck in my convictions. Eric, I just, I'm doing this. I'm stuck here. I'm just convicted, convicted, convicted. I say, okay, well, first and foremost, know that God loves you Know that God's grace is real. But the other side too, conviction also shows you the way out. If you're convicted about something you did do that you want to stop doing, the answer's simple. Stop doing the thing. Like, Like you can pray all you want, but God has already revealed it to you. And if you feel convicted, well, I need to, I want to pray more. I want to give for the first time. I want to get involved in a church. I'm just really feeling super convicted about this. The answer's there. Just start doing it. You know, people will come up to me after sermons man Eric that was a great message you really convicted me stepped on my toes a little bit I didn't like that too much to which I said yeah I'll step harder no I'm just kidding I don't do that but I wanted to just say like, are you going to actually do something with it though like, are you making conviction the end game that as long as you can wear it like a badge and say yeah man I got super convicted this week me too cool high five let's go about life it's just a layover From apathy to conviction to faithful discipline. You ever notice how you don't just wake up disciplined in life? You don't wake up one morning, kind of stretch out and crack your neck, get all loose, and you're like, oh, it's two hours earlier than I planned. Unless, like, you got to go to the bathroom or whatever. But you know what I mean, like... You don't just wake up disciplined one day. All the things that I wanted to start doing, all of a sudden I found myself in the gym or, or eating two donuts instead of three donuts. Man, it just kind of happened. I don't know, this is great. I didn't make any new changes or differences, but here I am. I'm just a more disciplined person. You don't just stumble into discipline. It takes intentionality. It takes planning. It takes forethought. It takes just giving up and doing it. You also ever notice you can find yourself apathetic without trying You ever find yourself reflecting on maybe a week, a month, a season, a year? Whew. Really let myself go. Life kind of got away from me. As Paul is saying, following Jesus, you need to look different from the world. And in order to do that, it's going to take discipline. You got to believe that greater reward. Let me give you an example. I'll see it here in a second, but let me give you an example of one of those disciplines that we need to embody as Christians. It's this idea of truth. Everyone in this world is looking for truth. Christian, agnostic, atheist, secular humanist, Buddhist, Hindu, Jewish, you feel it, they are looking for Truth. Now, there's some pretty equal standards. Any society or any group of people would probably say there are certain truths we all would adhere to. Killing people is bad. Two plus two, no matter what you call it, is four. And as Christians, we believe that truth looks like this. Truth comes with grace, and we call that love. But we also live in a world and society that says, no, 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 truth is relative based on my heart, my ways, what I think, and you need to adjust it. Your truth can't be true because this is my truth over here. And you just say, well, which is it? Give me all the grace, but don't give me any truth. Sometimes we hear that saying. Truth can't be relative. It takes discipline to stay firm in that. It takes discipline to say, this is the truth that I stand on. This is the truth that I know, this is the truth that I believe, and I will not waver from it. And so I'll just say this real quickly: that as Christians here at this church, we believe in one truth and one truth only, and it's this: it's the word of God. Is that we we, we we believe and we see and we experience Jesus Christ. He is our Messiah, He is our Savior. We believe that all scripture is truth. It's it's God breathed to build us up, to push forward the kingdom of God. It does not change, it is not relative. That depending on what society is doing or saying, or depending on what's happening over here in the news, our truth does not move, and this is where we stand. This is the truth that we will always stand upon, because it is not relative, but it takes discipline. This is the word of life. Anything you want to take out of here, uh uh-uh. Anything you want to adjust to make you feel more comfortable, uh uh-uh. This is the truth that we stand on, no matter what. That is who we are as First Christian Church that has not changed and that will not change. But to acknowledge something isn't enough. You don't just say, yeah, yeah, yeah truth is truth. You don't just believe. We believe to the point where it causes us to act. Why? Because Jesus truly changes us. Look at how we're going to wrap up here in chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. Book of Philippians. We're going to close here about how we live this out. Check this out. Verse 8 and 9. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, Whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, don't miss this part into verse nine. Put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. The goal is to not not focus on the bad stuff. The goal is to focus on on Jesus. Whatever is good, true, right, admirable, excellent, praiseworthy. That is where our attention and our focus goes. We don't acknowledge it, but as Paul says, we put it into practice. And I think for a lot of us, if you're like me, my biggest issue oftentimes in following Jesus, my biggest issue isn't belief. My biggest issue isn't truth, so to speak. My biggest issue is apathy of taking these words and letting them convict me to the point where I actually do something with us because apathy is dangerous. Because I think if we, if we stay in an apathetic lane for too long, we begin to think following Jesus doesn't make a difference. Or perhaps God doesn't care about me or he doesn't know what he's doing. Let me give you two illustrations of why apathy is dangerous. Number one, Is uh, anybody uh, ever, like, if you've ever broken an arm or a leg or got major surgery, you get put in, like, a cast or, like, a big sling or something. And if you have to stay in it for any period of time, you develop what's called muscle atrophy. So your muscles actually get smaller. They begin to become weakened purely because they're not being used. Now, in eighth grade, I dislocated my shoulder playing football, flag football, for all all, (laughs) honesty's sake. Hey, don't be laughing. Come on it hurt real bad. Then my my shoulder would dislocate like for years. Like I remember one time I was in a basketball game my junior year uh, of high school. I dislocated my shoulder without anybody even touching me. I just like moved too bad and it just popped out. It just was a thing. So finally, after like 12 dislocations, they're like, we should probably get this thing fixed. So says, okay, so, so I got surgery and they put me in an immobilizer sling for 10 weeks. My arms had to stay like this. It had a cool little squish ball. That, and what, But, it, you know, after time, and now to this day, this gun is slightly smaller than this gun. I'm just kidding. There's no guns to show off here. As a result. Why? Because for a period of time, it got weakened. It wasn't used. Let me give you another example. Do you know why babies cry? To get under your skin. No, I'm just kidding. That's what toddlers do, all right? I'm convinced of it. But babies cry because they need something. They call this a need loop. When a baby needs food or comfort or they're tired, they don't know how to communicate, so the only thing they know how to do is cry. So they cry and they cry and cry, and they hope that through their crying, someone will come and feed them or someone will come and and pat their bottom or someone will come and comfort them or someone will come swaddle them a little bit tighter, Now, they say if you go to an orphanage, you'll notice something interesting is that it's oddly quiet for how many babies are in there. Because what happens with babies is if they begin to cry, the need loop gets broken if that need isn't met. The baby begins to cry because they're hungry, but mom doesn't come feed me. The baby begins to cry because it wants some comfort, but no one shows up. The baby begins to cry because it's tired, but dad doesn't come and put me back to bed. And so they just stop crying altogether. If you will, they become apathetic to believing someone's actually going to be there for them. And when we become apathetic in our faith, it does those two things. It becomes weakened, and we stop crying out to God. We stop thinking He's going to show up. We quit relying on His presence to bring us comfort and peace. When the ways of this world seem to be heavy and burdensome, we stop crying out to God altogether. You see, what apathy does, it doesn't remove you from the kingdom of God. It doesn't take away that citizenship that Jesus has given to you. But what it does do is it stops the kingdom of God from moving through you. Apathy is dangerous because we get into this moment, we get into these seasons or these ruts, and we think, does God actually care about me? Does his word actually make a difference? Is he going to show up when I need him or not? It stops you from experiencing, as Paul would say, the greater reward waiting for you that's attainable. And that's my heart for you as your pastor is to say, that's what I want for you. Not the apathetic thing, but to experience the greater reward that is Jesus Christ. I want you to cry out and hear his voice. I want you to understand that resurrection power. I want you to trust his word. I want you to know that he will never leave you nor forsake you. But here's the kicker. I can't do that for you. No matter how good I preach, no matter how amazing the songs our team does, we can only get you to the point, but it's up to you to put it into practice. It's up to you to take that apathy, be convicted, but then do something with it. To have that mature mindset to be convicted of that clear path of following Jesus. The only person who can fight apathy in any area of your life, but especially faith is you. I can't fight that fight for you. You have to fight it yourself. But I think if you start by saying, Jesus truly changes people. Jesus is truly changing me. He wants to make the old gone and the new come to life. What a greater foundation to stand upon. Create that need loop. Cry out to God to experience his grace. Acknowledge your apathy. Recognize grace. Know that you're a citizen in the kingdom of heaven. Think about these things of Christ. But then do... Something with it. As we wrap up Philippians, it's this one simple truth. It's how we fight apathy. With the discipline knowing that Jesus is the greater reward. That's it. If you can internalize that, if you can every day get up and believe that truth, the discipline will come even easier. But you gotta start somewhere. So as we continue to worship this morning, let me just ask you, where might you be convicted to experience Jesus as the greater reward in your life right now? Where might the Holy Spirit be tugging on you a little bit tighter than perhaps he did yesterday or Wednesday or last Sunday this morning? What might he be saying? Hey, remember, I'm the true reward in this life. We're big proponents of of reading and studying the Bible for yourself. We don't shy away from that. So we give you sermon notes that have work to do throughout the week so that you can know and hear and understand his voice. So we challenged everyone to memorize. Every series we're gonna do is scripture memory verse so that we can store up the truths of God in our hearts and in our minds. So we talk about prayer and we model it from stage. It's why we talk about the importance and the power of groups because other people to walk along with you as you figure and navigate this whole faith thing out. Sometimes volunteering to serve is one of the best ways you can push back apathy because you got to show up or else someone's going to know. How might the Holy Spirit be saying to you this morning, I am the greater reward discipline yourself fight back that apathy don't just be convicted but put it in to practice the band's going to lead us in a song here and there's this line that's going to say take the whole world but give me jesus every single sunday we sing songs together not because we want to have some form of like Christian karaoke and, and you know hopefully you sound good or whatever. No, no, it's because when we sing, when we worship we are declaring these words to God. And so uh, as we invite you to sing with us this morning, as we continue to worship you're going to sing those words take the whole world but give me Jesus. Sing them like you mean it. Sing them like you believe that truth. Sing them knowing that Jesus is the greater reward that he claims to be. Would you stand with us as we sing out to our Savior?